Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Well, we're just over a week shy of the three-year anniversary of the launch of the Art of the Sermon podcast. And I know I say thank you a lot, but especially on an anniversary like this one, I want to be sure to say thank you so much for listening. It means so much that you all would download these episodes and be a part of this amazing community. Every time I hit publish on an episode and see that people are downloading and listening, it means so much to me, not just because it means you're enjoying what I'm doing, but it means that you're making this podcast and the guest we bring on and the conversations we have a part of your ministry. It also means that I'm not alone in caring about this kind of stuff, that there are other people out there that find this interesting and want to engage with conversations like this. Well, maybe to celebrate the three-year anniversary, maybe to experiment a little bit, and certainly to push myself a bit out of my comfort zone, we're going to do something on today's episode that I could not have foreseen myself doing three years ago when we started this show, and that is I'm going to play you one of my sermons. Now, I'm a little bit nervous because you might listen to this and say, we've been listening to this guy talk about preaching for three years, and this is how he preaches, Uh, but I really do hope that you enjoy it. The topic and some of the content in the sermon is stuff that I've been wanting to share on the podcast for a while, and instead of rewriting and rejiggering it, I finally figured, let's just go ahead and play the sermon. Now, it's not contextualized for us, so we'll go through that for a minute here quickly, uh, and then I'll play you the sermon. The text for the sermon is the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, and it also brings in some of the work from leadership thinker and writer Simon Sinek. Perhaps you've seen his TEDx talk or read his book, Start With Why. He set out to understand why certain leaders, organizations, institutions, communicators are able to make a difference and why many of us aren't able to motivate or call people to action at quite the same level. What was the difference maker? And he came up with what he calls the golden circle and it looks like the target logo. In the outer ring he's labeled it what, in the middle ring he's labeled it how, and in the bullseye he's labeled it why. And he says all of us understand what we do. If we're a company we know what product or service we offer. For us as ministries we know what our church offers for us as preachers, teachers, and communicators, we understand that we're preaching a sermon or writing a blog or leading a small group or teaching a class. And many of us, though not all of us, understand how we do it. We understand what makes our approach different, what makes our approach unique. We understand what our unique take on each thing is. And for many of us, that's where we stop. But the truly transformative people understand why they do it, and they let that why guide everything else. That's why it's called Start With Why. He likes to use Apple computers as an example, and he says that Apple isn't actually selling us computers. They're selling us a perspective. They're selling us a mission. They're selling us this idea that we are creative people who can make a difference in the world if we have the right tools, and Apple are the people that want to create and sell us the tools needed to express ourselves and to make a difference. And that's why we're willing to buy computers and tablets and phones and MP3 players and watches from Apple. And if they were to make a car or a television, we'd probably buy those too. Because we don't look at Apple as a computer company, we look at it as a, as a company that's providing us the tools to make a difference. And so for us as preachers, are we getting in the pulpit because it's just part of our job? Are we getting in the pulpit and preaching because it's what we get paid for? Or are we getting up there because it's a calling? Are we getting up there because we have a message that we feel God wants to communicate to our community? Rob Bell puts it this way. It's the difference between having to say something and having something to say. 
And I'm sure this is something that we have all felt and experienced as we've listened to sermons. Surely we've heard sermons from preachers who are just going through the motions, who are just up there because it's part of their job or it's what they were supposed to do that week. We've also all heard sermons from transformational preachers who are living out of their calling and delivering a message that God has given them to make a difference in their community. And whether we could verbalize it or not, we could feel it and we could sense it, and our people can too. Simon Sinek puts it this way, people don't buy what we do, they buy why we do it. So if you'd like to stick around and hear how I delivered this content to a local congregation, the sermon is up next. It's called Inside Out. It was delivered on World Communion Sunday in October of 2017 at Tuxton United Methodist Church in Athens, Georgia. Is there a more disappointing question in the history of humanity than, is Pepsi okay? I mean, think about it. I want you to imagine this, okay? And I want you to actually imagine it. I want you to close your eyes, cue the music. You walk into your favorite Italian restaurant. You can smell the tomatoes and the garlic. Some of you wish you ate breakfast this morning. And you just feel at home, right? You're in your favorite Italian restaurant. You smell the tomatoes. You smell the garlic. Some of you have your eyes open. We're imagining, folks, eyes closed best. Tomatoes, garlic, onions, you can smell it. And the host takes you to your table. And along the way, you see all your old friends, lasagna and manicotti, chicken tetrazzini, maybe a pizza or two get to your table. You sit down on what looks like leather. You know it's plastic, but it looks like leather and it feels so good. You sit down, your server comes to the table and they have a back, close your eyes, Jared. They have a basket of warm bread fresh out of the oven, right? Mm-hmm. And they pour that little dish of olive oil with the spices in it. And the server asks you, can I get you something to drink? And you say, I would love an ice cold Coca-Cola. And the server responds, is Pepsi okay? (laughs) The polite answer, you can open your eyes now. The polite answer is, sure, that's fine. The neutral answer is, uh, no thanks, I'll have water, which is a huge step down, right? From Coke to water. The impolite thing to say is, are you kidding me? And the thing you actually want to say is not anything I feel comfortable saying in church, so shame on you. But Pepsi is not okay. Sure, Pepsi is a cola, but it's not Coca-Cola, right? There is a difference. Pepsi tastes like a cavity. Coke tastes like your childhood. A few years ago, the radio show This American Life found what they believe to be an early recipe of Coca-Cola. And we're going to reveal it to you now. It's up on the screen. This is not the one that's locked away in a safe over in Atlanta at the World of Coke. This is one of the early variations of Coke from Dr. Pemberton's notes. His original drink was made up of, and I kid you not, cocaine, caffeine, and wine. That was his original offering. And when Georgia decided to become a dry state, he couldn't make this anymore. So he replaced the wine with about 30 pounds of sugar, and that's how we got Coca-Cola. This is an early recipe for Coke. Fluid extract of Coca, that is cocaine, okay? That is actually cocaine. Cocaine was removed from Coca-Cola in 1903. There is a company in New Jersey 
literally, it's the only company in America that is allowed to import cocaine and remove the drug part from it and send the rest of it to Coke, and they still put it in your beverage so you, you don't go crazy, but can you see why Coke caught on, right? Okay, so fluid extract of coca, citric acid, caffeine, sugar, water, lime juice, vanilla, caramel, but then that next column, that's the secret, the 7X flavoring. This is why your homemade Coke doesn't taste like Coke, because you don't have the 7X flavoring. Alcohol, can you also see why early Coke caught on? Cocaine and alcohol? Alcohol, orange oil, lemon oil, nutmeg oil, coriander oil, neroli oil, and cinnamon oil. And I can hear some of you saying, ah, neroli, that's the flavor that I was missing. <laughs> your homemade Coke doesn't taste right because you forgot to get the neroli oil. But here's the thing. This is just cola. This is what all colas are made out of. Now, they might have different ratios. They might substitute an ingredient or leave an ingredient out, like RC Cola just leaves out flavor, right? <laughs> but this is cola. This Coca-Cola isn't what's on paper, right? Coca-Cola isn't just the recipe. It is an experience. How many of you think that you can tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi? Show of hands. How many of you want to prove it? I need three volunteers. All right, Kim, I need two more volunteers. Neil? All right, young man, come on up. We are going to do a Coke Pepsi taste test. This is not the first time in the history of the Christian church that this has been done, but I would imagine it's the first time in Tuxton's history. Here's glass number one. I'm going to do this with you, even though I know which is which. Oh, geez, do I remember which is which? Well, we'll do it together. I'll pretend I forgot. Glass number one. Let's take a sip. Okay. You can put your glasses back where you can hang on to it. Glass number two. Glass number two. Glass number two. Go ahead and let's taste glass number two. Okay, yeah. All right, of you three, how many of you think Coke was in glass number one? How many of you think Coke was in glass number two? You are correct, sir! <laughs> All right, thank you. Can we have a round of applause for our volunteers? Coke was in glass number two. Now, here's what's interesting. Is that, well, that was just a, can you tell the difference? How many of you ever heard of the Pepsi challenge? Advertising campaign Pepsi does about every 10 years when they're about to go bankrupt, right? They do blind taste tests and they ask people not just can you tell the difference, but which do you prefer? And scientifically, Pepsi wins by a large margin. In, in blind taste tests, Pepsi wins. Now, the writer Malcolm Gladwell says that's because in a blind taste test, you're generally drinking just a small amount and Pepsi is sweeter, right? Remember, it tastes like a cavity. The smell of Pepsi can give you a cavity. It's sweeter, and our brains prefer sweeter. And in fact, like I said, it's scientifically proven. It's not just proven in the commercials. There is a machine called a functional MRI that looks at your brain as it's going. It's like a videotape of different areas of your brain lighting up. And when people don't know whether they're drinking Coke or Pepsi, when they drink Pepsi, the pleasure centers of their brain light up more. Biologically speaking, 
Pepsi is better. Theologically speaking, that's incorrect, and we all know that. But biologically speaking, Pepsi wins. But here is the scary part. They then decided to tell people which ones they were drinking. And the results switched. And I'm not just saying, like, you blind taste test said this one tastes... This is your brain. When they didn't know what they were drinking, the pleasure centers of their brain lit up more for Pepsi. When they knew the name of what was in the cup, it rewired their brain. It's a little scary, huh? That is the power of Coca-Cola. Not the recipe. Not the taste. The power of Coke really has nothing to do with the beverage itself. It has to do with the identity of Coke. My undergraduate degree is in advertising, and I'm about to let you in on a secret about Coke's advertising. And once I tell you this, you will never be able to unsee it. This is my gift to you. This is free. You can take this. I'm not talking about Coke Zero commercials or Diet Coke commercials. I am talking about Coca-Cola commercials, when they've got the red, or they've got the polar bears, or they've got the people. And the... There is never, ever, ever anyone alone in a Coke commercial. No one is ever by themselves. And if they are by themselves, they start by themselves, and by the end of the commercial, what has happened? Someone has shown up and given them a Coke, right? You think about, like, the polar bears, always in a family. You think about that one that's going on right now where that guy likes the girl at the bar and he wants to, at the beach cabana thing, and he wants to buy her a Coke, and she goes off to the, he feels really alone. And then she's like, oh, I made him sad, so I'm going to buy him a Coke. So just think of it. Some of you don't watch TV, and that's fine. No one is ever, ever alone in a Coke commercial because Coke is not about the beverage. Coke is about community. Coke is about relationships. Coke is about family. It's about friends. It's about food. It's about fun. It's about America. Can you even imagine a McDonald's with a Pepsi machine? Other than like the truck stops where they just have to share the soda fountain with all 56 drinks, right? You go into a McDonald's, you expect Coca-Cola. You expect, and not only that, but like McDonald's has the kind of Coke that like shoots you in the eyeballs while you're drinking it, right? It's just so strong because that's the power of America, right? Coca-Cola is community, it's patriotism, it's relationships. It has nothing to do with what's actually in the cup. A few years ago, uh, a guy named Simon Sinek wanted to understand why certain brands, certain products, certain leaders, certain individuals were able to do this why they were able to be so successful, why they were able to make a difference. And he came up with what he called the golden circle, which is the next slide. This is the golden circle. It looks like the Target logo. It's got three rings to it. In the center, we have why. In the middle ring, we have how. And in the outer ring, we have what. And he says, companies like Coke that are transformational, leaders that are transformational, people that make a difference, they work, they understand their work, and they communicate about their work from the inside out. Regular brands, regular products, regular leaders, just regular people that don't make a difference, they work from the outside in. Think about Coca-Cola. The what would be the soda part. But the power of Coke is not about the soda. That's the last part. Coke starts in the middle with why. Coke makes you think of family and friends. Their why is we want to build relationships. We want to make the world better. 
We want you to, to have stronger connections to the community around you. And how do we do that? We create something that makes you happy. We create something that makes you want to share it with people. Think about a potluck dinner. You know the thing where everybody brings something? And generally, you show up to a potluck dinner at a church, and they've got like water and lemonade and maybe some tea. And then there's that person that instead of bringing the 45th bucket of Publix fried chicken, they bring a two liter of Coke. And suddenly it's a party. It's not just a potluck dinner anymore. That person has lightened the mood in the whole room because now Coke is an option. We don't just have to drink water or lemonade or tea. It makes you happy. And maybe a couple years ago when they started putting the names on the bottles, you were like, oh, that's kind of fine. But then remember the first time you actually saw a bottle at Publix with your name on it? You're like, oh, yeah, that's really great. But how many of you have ever had someone buy you a bottle with your name on it? How'd you feel? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All you can do, there's not even like words to describe it. It's just, yeah, when someone th- says, you know, I saw this bottle, it says, Bobby, I was thinking about you and I brought it to you. It just changes your whole day. That is the gospel, right? That is the love of Christ shared. When someone, especially if you have like a weird name, right? And someone's able to find it or they special order it for you. You are never throwing that bottle away. That will sit on your shelf until kingdom come because someone thought about you and they made a connection. And oh, by the way, that bottle happens to have Coke in it. You see, they they communicate from the inside out. Another great example would be Apple computers. Uh, Five or ten years ago, do you remember the commercials where they said, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, right? They had kind of the nerdy guy and then they had the supposed to be cooler guy. Back then, Microsoft used to sell computers from the outside in. They used to say, we sell computers, and they have lots of good things on them, and you can do work with our computers. Would you like to buy a computer? You see, they started with the what? What? We sell computers. How? Well, we put them together, and then we put them in a store, and then you can buy them. Why? Because you have work to be done. But Apple communicates from the inside out. They don't tell you about the RAM. They don't tell you about the processors. They don't tell you about the numbers. They say, don't our machines look good? Doesn't this thing inspire you? And sure, you can do business on it, but we also put a program called GarageBand on it. You've always wanted to be a rock star. You can record an album on this computer. And 95% of you will never record an album, but you could. And it comes with iMovie. You can make movies. You can be creative. Because Apple starts with their why. They say, we want to change the world. We want to make the world a better place. And we believe you can make the world a better place. So we're going to give you a machine that looks good and inspires you. We're going to give you a machine that allows you to fulfill your creative energies. We're going to give you a machine that allows you to be the spark in your community to make the world better. Do you want to buy a computer? And you're like, yes, and I will pay way more than it's worth. That's why we listen to iPods and not Zunes. Do you ever think about that? You remember the Zune? Most of you don't, because Microsoft was like, it plays music. And you're like, I don't care. It doesn't change the world. But you've noticed, Microsoft realized they lost that battle, and now their commercials are the same way as Apple's are, right? In fact, some might argue Microsoft's winning now, because they have begun to communicate from the inside out. They show you that teacher that uses his laptop to draw and to teach history to students and all that stuff, they have changed the way they communicate because they realized that they lost. The same thing happens in our workplaces. If I were to hire you for a job and I were to give you a paycheck, you would work for me for my money. But as soon as you find a job with a better paycheck 
or better hours or a better community, you will leave me and go work for that other job, right? But if you believe in what we're doing together, you might not take that other job no matter how better the paycheck is. The largest generation in the workforce now is millennials, my generation. In 2015, we passed Gen X as the largest generation in the workforce. Millennials and Gen Z, studies have shown, will take a lower paying job if they believe that they can make a difference, if they believe that they can change the world. And for a lot of millennials and Gen Z folks, their work is not their calling. Their work is not what they live for. They work to live rather than live to work. So a job that has a lower paycheck but better hours or more vacation or the flexibility to work from home, my generation will take that job because then it allows us to live into our why. Uh, Next slide. A couple years ago when you got hired by Apple, this was the letter sitting on your desk when you got there for the first day of work. It says, welcome to Apple. There's work and then there's your life's work. The kind of work that has your fingerprints all over it. The kind of work that you would never compromise on that you'd sacrifice a weekend for. You can do that kind of work at Apple. People don't come here to play it safe. They come here to swim in the deep end. They want their work to add up to something, something big, something that couldn't happen anywhere else. Welcome to Apple. This has nothing to do with computers. Welcome to Tuxton. There's work and then there's your life's work. There's the kind of work that has your fingerprints all over it, the kind of work that you'd never compromise on, that you'd sacrifice a weekend for. You can do that kind of work at Tuxton. People don't come here to play it safe. They come here to swim in the deep end. They want their work to add up to something, something big, something that couldn't happen anywhere else. Welcome to Tuxton. Welcome to Moe's. Welcome to University Tire. Welcome to the DMV. This letter could be sitting on anyone's desk because it has nothing to do with the what. It has to do with the what? The why. This is, this is how they get people to work all weekend for nothing. <laughs> and probably their fingerprints are all over it because everything at Apple is made out of glass, but that's a separate topic. And you're, so the, the, the summary of Simon Sinek's work, next slide, is this. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that applies to businesses, but it also applies to just like, you know, you hear someone speak and you're like, I don't buy it. In fact, some of you may be thinking that right now. You're looking at me and going, I don't buy that. You know? People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And that leads us to today's scripture, which is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is when God called the prophet Jeremiah to his work. This is what God said to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now God is kind of speaking in Yoda speak here. Before this, this happened. Before that, that happened. So I kind of straightened it out in chronological order. This is what God says to Jeremiah. I knew you. I formed you. I consecrated you. You were born, and I appointed you. That is the inside-out progression, isn't it? I knew you. Before a single cell of your body existed, I knew you. I knew your purpose. I knew why you were supposed to exist. And then I formed you. That's the, the how, right? That's our bodies. That's our vessels. Then I created the how. And then I consecrated you. 
You were born, and I appointed you. That's the what. What are we supposed to do? The way that God creates us, the way that God forms us, the way that God calls us is from the inside out. And I think that there is perhaps a better set of vocabulary than how uh, or why, how, what. And so I call it the adapted golden circle. We'll go to the next slide. In the center, instead of why, we have our identity. The middle ring, instead of how, we have our values. And the outer ring, instead of what, we have behavior. I think this applies better to our lives and better to the church as an organization. But it follows the same spirit, not only of Simon Sinek's work, but it follows what God gave us in Jeremiah chapter 1, written thousands of years ago. This isn't a new discovery. This is the way that God has been making us forever. And I used to teach this in college campus ministry at a time when students were just so stressed out about, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? What am I supposed to major in? And what I've come to realize the further I've gotten away from college ministry and the older that I've gotten is that question doesn't end in college, does it? It doesn't end 20 years into your career, does it? What am I supposed to do? We all struggle with that. But that's not the first question we're supposed to ask. What am I supposed to do? The question we should be asking ourselves is who am I? What is my identity? Because our identity drives our values, and then our values determine our behavior. So what is our identity? We are sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, created in the image of God, members of the body of Christ, unconditionally loved and forgiven, made for good works, and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That is our identity. That is what the Bible tells us we are. We are sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God, unconditionally loved and forgiven, made for good works, and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. If that is our identity, then what do we value? If we are sons and daughters of God, then we value our relationship with God. If we are members of the body of Christ, we value our relationship with one another. If we're made for good works and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, then we value evangelism. We value inviting people who are not yet a part of the family of God to be a part of the family of God. And so then, if our values determine our behaviors, what are our behaviors? If we value our relationship with God, what do we do? You can answer this one. If we value our relationship with God, what do we do? We share it with others. What else do we do? We live it. What else do we do? What are you doing right now? We're worshiping. We come to church. We read our Bible. We pray. If we value our relationship with one another, what do we do? We join a life group. We plan fellowship activities. We build relationships with one another. And if we value inviting other people to be a part of the family of God, making disciples of Jesus Christ, then what do we do? We participate in evangelism. It doesn't mean that you necessarily knock on every door in your neighborhood. But it means that you look for the openings in the relationships in your life to share with them what Christ has done for you and what God can do for them. Those are our behaviors. But they're driven by our values, which are determined by our identity. But what happens when we live from the outside in? Because I'm afraid that there are a lot of Christians around the world and maybe even some in this room who are living from the outside in. Because for you, Christianity is a set of behaviors, right? Christianity, we go to church because we have to. We read the Bible because we have to. We pray because we have to, right? And it's not just stuff that we do. 
There's stuff that Christians don't do, right? We don't cuss. We don't smoke. We don't drink to excess. We don't have sex outside of marriage. We don't go to bad movies. And all. There are things that we do and there are things that we don't do. And that's Christianity, right? Christianity is a set of behaviors. That's cultural Christianity. There's a large portion of America who are living Christianity from the outside in. They start with these behaviors. But then if you start with your behaviors and your behaviors then drive your values, what do you value? You value whether or not you can do the good stuff and you value whether or not you can stop the bad stuff. And if that's what we value, then what is our identity? We are jerks, <laughs> aren't we? Because we, what we value is whether or not we're better than everybody else. Whether we're a good person and they're bad people. Because we're doing the right thing and they're not. And we're not doing the bad stuff and they are. We value whether we become perfectionists. We become jerks. Who wants to be a part of that church? Who wants to be friends with that Christian? Who receives an invitation to church from that Christian and goes, I'll be there. Pick me up. I'm excited. We don't know. That's not, that's not how it works, is it? Those are the kind of Christians we want nothing to do with even for us other Christians. Now let me ask you a question. What happens when we sin? Because we all sin, we all make mistakes. Well, if we're living from the inside out, the starting point is our identity. And what was our identity? We are sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God, members of the body of Christ, unconditionally loved and forgiven, set aside for good works, and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. If you start at your identity, the starting point is that you are unconditionally loved and forgiven. Now, there are still consequences to sin, aren't there? We can still mess up relationships. We can still mess up our own lives. If we're caught in addiction, it may have moved to a medical thing that we need to seek medical help for. But our relationship with God is just fine. Because the starting point is that we're unconditionally loved and forgiven. And by just fine, I mean when we repent and honestly ask God for forgiveness of our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us. We might have to live with the earthly consequences, but the eternal consequences with God are taken care of. But what happens if we're living from the outside in? And to be honest, we all have days where we live from the outside in. Every single one of us, myself included. If you live from the outside in, and what you value is whether or not you can do the good stuff and whether or not you can't do the bad stuff, and your identity is that God loves me if I'm perfect and God hates me if I'm imperfect, what happens when you sin? God doesn't love you anymore. And perhaps for some of you, your relationship with God is stagnant because this is how you've been living your life. This is how you have defined your identity. This is how you've defined your relationship with God. When you sin, it means God can't love you because you're not perfect. You're not doing the stuff that God wanted you to do. And you're not staying away from the stuff that God wanted you to stay away from. Some of you perhaps haven't matured in your relationship with God because this is how you've been living your life. And if you can flip that switch and live from the inside out, this will set you free. We can have fun with Coke and Pepsi and we can laugh and we can say cocaine in church and stuff, but that's not what it's about. It's about orienting ourselves so that we can be set free in the gospel. 
It applies to organizations as well. We as a church have an identity. And we need to live out of that identity. I used to work at a, a college campus ministry, and one of the, the biggest events that you do on college campus ministry are fellowship events. Because the loneliest people on the face of the planet are college students. And I know that that sounds odd, but it's true. The loneliest people on the face of the planet are college students. And so we did fellowship events out the wazoo. If there wasn't worship or there wasn't Bible study, we were playing video games or we were playing intramurals or we were doing something fun. But an organization that lives from the outside in, our behavior is that we do fellowship events. And if that's the starting point, then what we value is whether or not the event sounds fun. And so if it doesn't sound fun, I'm not going to show up. Or think about worship. If, if our behaviors as a congregation is, well, we come to worship, what we value is, well, worship was either good or it was bad. Bobby was either in tune or he was out of tune. Dan either rushed on the drums or he did fine. And the sermon was either interesting or it wasn't. I either laughed or I didn't. I either got something out of it or I didn't. And then you begin to make your decisions about whether you're going to show up and whether you're going to participate based on whether you like it or not. But if we live from the inside out, our identity is that we value our relationship with God and one another, then we show up to worship whether we're getting something out of it or not because that's what we value. We show up to the fellowship event whether it sounds interesting to us or it doesn't because it might be interesting to someone else. And the thing that we say to them or the hand that we shake or the hug that we give them or the listening ear that we offer to them may be the thing that shows them the love of Christ that brings them into relationship with God and it doesn't matter whether it was fun for you. Now, I want you to get something out of church. I want you to like it. We in the band, Jeanette, all the staff, Josh, Todd, uh, Jennifer, everybody, they work really hard for you to like it, but it's not what it's about. It's about this moment right here, where we are together worshiping God because it's what we were made to do. Jesus says the two most important commandments are to love God and love other people. And that might sound like behaviors, but that's really an identity, isn't it? Think about the times in your life where everything has felt in place. Where everything, where it just feels right. You know those moments where time slows down and you kind of get out of yourself and you appreciate those moments? Parents, what are those moments? It's Thanksgiving with the family, isn't it? Or Christmas morning when the kid got exactly what they asked for and then they actually still liked it. <laughs> Friends, what is it? It's when you go to that youth fall festival and they have a bonfire and you're sitting around with your friends and you're holding the hand of the person that you met at age 15 and think you'll be with for the rest of your life and you won't and that's fine. <laughs> but it's these moments where we are loving God and loving other... Sorry to burst your bubble. This is just the truth. I'm a gospel preacher. It's those moments where we are in love God, we, we are in love with God and in love with other people. And you know those moments where you feel the most broken and the most out of sorts tends to be the moments when you're screaming at the news, isn't it? The things when, when things feel most out of place is when you recognize that there's brokenness in the world and you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. Our identity was made to be in harmony and unity and love with God and love with other people. This morning is World Communion Sunday. And the point of World Communion Sunday is not just to take communion, but it's to remind ourselves that we are part of a body that extends beyond these walls. It is easy for us to think 
that Tuxton United Methodist Church is the church, or the body of Christ in Athens is the church, or that the American church is the church, or that the United Methodist Church is the church, but the church is the body of Christ all the world over. And the point of communion is to remind ourselves of our identity and to reorient ourselves to who we are. Because the first thing that we do when we come to accept the body and blood of Christ in the bread and in the cup is to confess our sins, to confess that we need God, to confess that we are sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God. And when we receive the bread and the cup, it's a reminder that we are unconditionally loved and forgiven. There is no test you have to take to take communion. I'm not going to stop you and ask you to summarize Jeremiah chapter 15. There is no test. All you have to do is accept that you are unconditionally loved and forgiven. And then when we are sent forth as loved and forgiven from communion, we are not just sent forth so that we feel good about ourselves. We are sent forth to make a difference in the world. That's what we do together. And so God, we come to you today confessing our sins before God and one another. We have not loved you as you have asked, and we have not loved our neighbors as you have asked. But the good news of the gospel is that our relationship with you doesn't begin with behavior, but it begins with our identity. And you've told us in Scripture, and you've confirmed it through the Holy Spirit in our hearts today, that we are sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God, unconditionally loved and forgiven, made for good works, and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.